Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. Where we discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Today, we're going to be talking about the fifth domain of integration, the narrative domain. This season, we have been talking about, continuing to talk about the nine degrees of integration. And, uh, you know, since it is the narrative, I'm just going to give you, Kurt, the narrative of what's happened to me since we've last seen each other. (laughs) Um, Please, by all means. Yes. Thank you. Um, So my son, uh, Coleman, moved out um, the Friday uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, I helped him move. He moved into this like 120 year old building. It's a he's on the, the fourth floor, and it's a walk up. Oh, and, congratulations! Uh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> and so we had beds and couches and dressers and all these things to move. And uh, uh, I acted like I was 20 and moved everything with him. And uh, the next day, I got up and did a. Orange Theory class at 7 a.m., as you do after mm, you move couches and chairs. Of course you do. Of course you did. <laughs> and got home, and, and um, you know, he's gone now, and he was my gardener for uh, the last couple years. And so my grass, it's springtime here, and my grass hadn't been mowed yet, and it's growing. And I go to uh, to mow the lawn, and the, the lawnmower doesn't work. It's a little zero turn riding lawnmower and and it, it, it the blades aren't working. And so I decide that I'm going to take it apart and fix it. <laughs> Mr. Mechanic. Uh, where I where I got the idea that I could do this, I'm not sure, but I took the uh, the blade deck off and mm-hmm. lifted the tractor <laughs> and, and moved it to the side, which I don't think is a really part of the process. <laughs> Did you? Is um, that what they showed you on YouTube? How to do that? Did, how to lift the tractor? I did have, lift with your I legs. I did have Pepper. YouTube with me. Trust lift me. with your legs. Yeah, the great teacher YouTube. <laughs> so, um, so on by Sunday morning, I couldn't get out of bed. My wow. back was out, and um, I was in a lot uh, of pain, and uh, my grass was still growing, <laughs> as it is wont to do. Yes. So, um, so I called uh, my. My lawnmower guy, I called Junior, Junior Maxwell, and he came and he picked up both my my riding lawnmower and my little trimming push mower that neither of them were working. So he took them away. And the bad part is, you know, my neighbors have already cut their grass twice by this point, <laughs> and I've not cut mine once. And it's it's starting to look like a yard just full of decorative grass, right? right. I mean, it's seeding. Right. The, the grass is flowering. <laughs> And it's so thick. It's, it's the lupine lady, only it's her I'm, husband. Yes. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm completely embarrassed about it. And so I get a call from Junior and he says, I got bad news. The part for the riding lawnmower is back ordered and it's not going to be ready. I'm not going to have it for about a month. Hmm. Wow. So he says, I can, I can bring over the, the push mower and, you know, and you can use that. So I said, all right. So he brings it over, and I'm thinking, how am I even going to, you know, my back's killing me. How am I <laughs> going to yeah. even do this? So John, John Deere sells combines. You can, you can, get, you can get a combine just, and just, like, I, bail it. Honestly, I was about to bite the <laughs> bullet and go buy something. So anyway, I, I, I'm out, I'm cutting my front yard, and it's, the, the, the lawn is so thick and so high that, and, and this, the little trim mower has got a bag on it, that I do one path across my yard and I got to empty the bag. I got to walk the bag back up into the woods in my compost pile and then walk back. So I get about halfway done with my front yard. And uh, I've, I, I had an appointment I had to go to. So I run out the appointment to the chiropractor, right? Because <laughs> I'm trying to get my back fixed. You should have just invited uh, your chiropractor to come to your house. Like every swath, you just get some work it's done on your back. Crazy. So I go to the chiropractor. I come home. And hmm. my neighbor, Willie, hmm. is cutting my grass. Hmm. I mean, he's got it almost done at this hmm. point. And the first thing that happens to me is I'm just, I'm really embarrassed. Mm. Mm. I'm embarrassed that mm. somebody else is doing something that I should be doing. Mm. You know, I'm embarrassed that, that I'd let it go this long, all these things, right? Mm. Mm. So I, I grab the, the push mower and I'm trying to do my part and finish, 
you know, <laughs> going up these hills in my backyard. Like, and, a, like a little boy, like uh, keeping up with his dad. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so he finishes uh, – mm. Willie and Eula, my next door neighbors. I just, I just want to say, I, mm. I don't deserve these people in my life. They are, mm. they, they're surrogate grandparents to my kids. Mm. I've witnessed time after time them speaking words of encouragement into my kids. Mm. They, mm. I, I mean, we moved into this house. I, I mean, it was worth the price of the house mm. to move in next to them. Mm. Mm. And mm. so, so I, I, I want to thank him for. You know, and just explain to him about what's been going on, mm-hmm. why this is, you know, all this is happening. And he just waves mm-hmm. and rides off on his tractor and, and goes and puts it away and doesn't come back out. And I had to finish up the trimming and, and, and all that stuff. And I, huh. yeah. Wow. So that was my week. Wow. That was my week. You know, I'm, I'm. Sitting here, and I, I feel Willie's wave in my chest, and I'm imagining that if it were me, and I'd love to hear you say more about this. I'm imagining what the story is that you're telling yourself in that moment. What are you know, and what are the perhaps multiple threads of a story that are being told that you tell? When you see Willie's wave, well, in the moment, um, I was I was still probably soaking in my embarrassment of the situation. Mm. 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 Um, mm. You know, I was I was probably thinking about the fact that you know when I was doing yard work as a kid, it was never good enough. Mm. Um, it was mm. never, you know, I, I, I never said, you know, well, job well done. I never heard that. Mm. Never um, heard that from my father, your dad. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, and so there was probably this embarrassment that I couldn't do it. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I was grateful. Yeah. Yeah. So grateful. Right. I felt undeserving of this person that would do this for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, who does that? Right. And um, so, yeah, it was, I guess it was a little conflicting. Yeah. A little conflict going yeah. on there. Well, Pepper, as we enter into our conversation today about this narrative domain of integration, again, this phrase that we use in this language of interpersonal neurobiology, your story brings it right home because what we're really talking about with the narrative domain, we're talking about the way we tell stories. In last season, everyone, you all remember from last season that we talked about storytelling. We had an entire episode on storytelling. We explored some of the features of storytelling and how those different elements lead to the question of in what story do we believe we're living at any given moment? And the stories that we've been telling ourselves from the time we were kids, sometimes that get woven into our heads by experiences that we had, and we don't even know that those stories are being written. But we then develop our attachment patterns. We really think about the narrative domain of integration in this field of interpersonal neurobiology in terms of the research on attachment. What does it mean for us to be securely attached, not just to to each other, not just to our parents, primary caregivers, our teachers, our coaches, and so forth, to our spouses, to our children? How are we securely attached, not just to them, but how does that translate into our sense of attachment to God? And we come to discover that you can't really separate our attachment from human beings to our attachment pattern from God because God, as it turns out, has to deal with the same brains that everybody else does when it comes to our experiences in the storytelling, the way that we tell our stories. And one of the things that we talk about when we we talk about attachment being this 
individual interpersonal experience that the newborn and the infant and the toddler has, and that we all have continue to have as even as adults, wherein which the newborn's immature brain uses the hopefully mature adult's brain to help organize itself. So the baby comes into the world, as we say, looking for someone, looking for him. He comes into the world looking for someone to say, well done, good job on the yard work. We like, we look for that. We look for our parents' delight. We don't look hoping to be a source of anxiety or distress, or at the very least, we don't hope to be left wondering, did I do a good enough job when I'm really looking for that? I'm looking for, I, like, you don't have to tell me to look for the blessing of my father's voice. I'm looking for that. I'm looking for the nurture and kindness of my mother's comfort to prepare me to launch out into the deep. As Jesus said to Peter, take this boat out into the deep. We're looking for that. And when we don't have that, if you don't have that growing up, then we're going to make up some kind of a story in the meantime. And this brain of this newborn, this infant is looking for someone looking for him. And the baby comes into the world with his particular or her particular temperament. And the parents are going to respond to that temperament and not just to the baby, but they're going to respond to that baby in the context in which that baby arrives. So I know that you already had four sisters. Yeah. Like you had, you had five mothers and a dad by the time you arrived. You want to say anything more about that? What that was like? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had, when I was born, um, my the next sibling up was about four years old. And then there was a five-year-old, a, eight-year-old and a 10-year-old probably uh, is about where they all were. And um, when I was born, the the doctor brought the baby out to my dad and <laughs> said, it's a boy, mm. to which my dad said, prove it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been here before. <laughs> can't can't but, fool me. You know, yeah, show me. Right, <laughs> right. Show me the money. And I came home to a uh, a place where you know I mean I was probably a plaything to my sisters mm. in the beginning you know mm. I mean they they like a doll that they cherished and and probably says a lot about me right I think it does in <laughs> fact I, I've, I've I've seen this in audiences I've seen this when I'm when I'm, I'm with sh- you I mean like you're just like we all just kind of stand back and uh-huh. we watch the fawning we watch you know everything yes. that's, everything that's directed at the most beautiful man in the world right right right. <laughs> So I yeah, love, so that I was, love doing this with you. So, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it's just awesome. So you know, yeah, that's that's how I came in. My story was already being told before I could tell it myself. Yeah, you know, I yeah. you, you talked about in the story episode that there are co-writers who begin our story for us, and they write the title, they write the first few chapters before we have words to even speak and start telling our own stories. Right. Right. And, those are the people that started telling mine. A little earlier, you had uh, mentioned when we were, before we started to record this episode, you mentioned that there was an experience that you were told about that your sister yeah. tells you. Say, tell us about that. Right, right. So uh, <clears throat> Tammy, the, the youngest of the girls, um, recalls a, this, you know, has very vivid memory of when they brought me home from the hospital, she went to pick me up and my dad got probably nervous and and said, you know, don't don't do that. Don't be careful. Don't touch him. And hmm. she has a has a had a very, you know, she t- still tells the story and hmm. can feel it. And hmm. you hmm. know, yeah. Hmm. So we're not trying to make more or less of that, either for Tammy or for you or for your dad, but we are right. we do want to make the observation that when we come into the world, we come into a world in which we're not the only person there. There are other people who are also having an experience in response to our presence. And at the same time that you were treated in some, in some sense like special, I mean, some, because you were the first boy, at the same time, there was at least one moment in which your presence was evoking distress. And again, we're not trying to make more of this than we are, right? We're not trying to say that this was a, 
hugely traumatic event. But all this to say is that your dad has some distress in some way, shape, or form. Again, nobody, we're not throwing anybody under the bus. Okay, right. he's, he, he might be a little afraid, worried, or whatever. But his response then evokes a response in your sister that, like, clearly, if she's now, like, still telling the story, it made an imprint on her, right? right. There's an impression. Right. And even though you're a newborn, your developing mind senses what's in the room in this moment in your presence. And so this is an example of how we come into the world and our presence then evokes a response in our parents. Our parents respond to us. I think I've said before too that I was the fourth of four sons, but they were all much older than me. And my mother was 44 when I was born in 1962. To be pregnant at age 44 at that time was distressing. It was anxiety provoking. And so before I was a source of joy, I was a source of anxiety. And not that I knew this cognitively, not that anybody told me this, of course, after I'm born growing up, but we sense it. We feel it in the environment. We sense it in the way that we talk non-verbally, because as we've said before about our, when we were talking about the, the hemispheres and the different ways that we communicate, like our nonverbal cues carry so much weight in the way that we tell our stories. And so we then, as infants and newborn, newborns and infants, we then, in response to our parents' response to us, we then will attach to them without even knowing what we're doing. We don't need language, we don't need cognition. We develop an attachment pattern to the way that they are responding to us so that we can regulate our own brain. We can organize our own sense of being stable in the world. And remember, being stable, that word stable, when you hear, well, they're in stable condition in the hospital, it means that we are relatively unchanging and predictable. It doesn't mean that I'm well. It just means that I'm stable. I'm not getting better, getting worse. I'm stable. And I move to stabilize myself. And if I'm living in a community, if I'm living in a family in which people are really paying attention to me with enough attentiveness that helps me sense that I'm being sensed, I then learn to co-regulate my emotional states with other people because they're paying attention to those things. And the way that they're responding is, though imperfect, the way that they respond demonstrates that they are paying attention to me being in the world. And so when that happens, when we have parents that are with us in the world in a way that really demonstrates their capacity to be comfortable with our presence, even with our presence in the presence of our siblings and the way this system has now changed because there's now five kids in the system and not four. And there's a one boy and four girls. And how is all that changing? As we like to say, no one, no sibling ever grows up in the same household. Yeah. We all have our own particular ways of going about that. And what we discover is that there are then different ways that we attach. And those attachment patterns can be relatively secure or insecure. We know some things about these attachment patterns. We know that I develop an attachment pattern with particular individuals so that my attachment pattern with my mom might be different than it is with my dad, might be different than it is with my teacher or my coach. I also, for the most part, have a fairly stable attachment pattern established by the time I'm about seven months of age. Wow. So it happens early. Interestingly enough, we talked a little bit, we've hinted at this notion when we talk about shame, and we'll come back to that, that shame plays a role because shame shows up as early as six to 18 months, six to 15 months of age in our life. We can start to have it weaving its way in and out of our attachment processes And we have then varying degrees of attachment patterns. And, you know, there's a a really interesting study done by Richie Davidson, who's a 
professor of psychology and a researcher who did this work at the University of Wisconsin. I'm just going to take a, a minute to talk about this. It's a, it's a 25-year-long longitudinal study with a group of kids who were determined to be constitutionally shy. So he was doing all this research on what is it like for kids who are shy And by shy, we mean I'm relatively less comfortable with novel circumstances, whether that's like new experiences on the playground, new experiences with people. I'm I'm a little more reticent to enter into those. Or kids who are less shy, kids who are more left-brain dominant, they tend to be out there, go get them. I'm, I'm less distressed by novel stimuli. If we take those kids who are shy more right hemispherically dominant. In that sense, my right hemisphere tends to be kind of like more like I'm taking in the world, watching it as a, as a whole thing before I jump into it. Mm-hmm. If you take those kids who are shy and you follow them for 25 years, what do you discover about their attachment patterns? And here's some things that were really interesting. After 25 years, Dr. Davidson discovered there were at least three groups that shook out of this. And group number one was a group in which the parents, and as it turned out, we watched the kids, and then you dis, you discern like, oh, there were like similar kinds of parenting strategies that took place. And group number one was a group of kids who, when their parents recognized that they were shy, their parents decided, I know that this kid is shy. I really want this kid to be able to be okay in the world, and so we're going to toughen him up which means we're going to push them to do hard things. We don't want the world to swallow them, and so we are going to push them into hard things, do hard things. And in that sense, those parents didn't pay that much attention to the child's mind in terms of where the child was feeling distress. The parents would just keep pushing them, pushing them, pushing them. And what was interesting about this 25-year longitudinal study, 25 years go by, and those children who are now adults and out in the working world were then explored and the researchers talked with other people who knew these people as adults. And they talked about how to work with these people. These were people who were fairly hard charging. These were people who worked really hard. They were perfectionistic. They did a lot of, they got a lot of stuff done. But they were also people who could be pretty critical. They were people who, you know, people who would work with them would say like, yeah, they're kind of tough to work with because they're like super demanding and there's not really much grace given by these folks, like they're just on it all the time. And when you then talk to the, to the subjects themselves, they would say, yes, I remember being shy and I remember my parents just driving me pretty hard and that's what's gotten me to where I am today. But they would also say that underneath this, they still felt this sense of insecurity, that this insecurity of not being okay in the world and the way that they respond to this is that they push harder into the world, not paying that much attention to their own emotional states, nor necessarily being that aware of other people's emotional states. And this fits a pattern of what we call an insecure avoidant attachment pattern. This notion that we are insecurely attached, and in this way what we mean is that I don't avoid emotion, meaning like I know what I feel, I'm just not going to pay attention to it. It means like I've worked and practiced so well to not pay attention to it at all that I don't even know that emotion is really kind of coming up for me. It doesn't mean that it's not affecting me, as we talked about in our episode on, on, on emotion last season, but it's still something I'm not very aware of. I don't see it as being useful to me. I don't think of it. I don't pay that much attention to it. I don't see it as being helpful in informing me about the nature of the relationships that I'm in. And so other people then experience me as being kind of hard-charging and insensitive to them. The second group turned out to be folks who their parents also recognized their child to be shy, and they had a different approach. Their approach was to protect their kids from all harm, and so they didn't push their kids. They were worried that the world would overwhelm them, and so they just pulled everything back. You know, if the kid didn't want to do something, they don't make him do something. Always moving to protect protecting the kid from the world as opposed to thrusting the kid into the world. And these were kids who, by the time they got to be adults, they would be described as people who had a hard time staying with things, people who had a hard time being confident about things, people who their colleagues working with them also had challenges with them because they couldn't always be dependent upon because the moment that they would reach, like, difficult moments, they would, like, need somebody else to come help them. So they appeared to be somewhat overly dependent in their experiences in the world. When you ask them about their life, they would say, yes, I remember being shy, and I wish that my parents had made me do harder things. 
because I just feel like I can't, like I, I'm aware that I, I don't, I don't like uh, have, I don't feel like I have much resilience in the world. And these are people who also would tend to fit what we would call an insecure and anxious attachment pattern. Now, what we're talking about today with these different patterns of security and insecurity, these are patterns in which we're being somewhat overly simplified as we're describing them because there's a whole research literature on them and different kinds of instruments that are used to measure this, the adult attachment interview, the infant strain situation. But all that to say is that this group would have been insecurely attached because they're anxious. Like, I don't know if you're coming or going. Like, my parents sometimes would be with me and sometimes they're not with me. My parents sometimes would be with me and they're overwhelmingly with me, even in my space when I don't want you to be there. And so I kind of grow up always kind of worried about where relationships are going to be. I, in fact, think a lot about emotion and am uncomfortable with it because I don't know if you're going to be with me or not with me. And if you are with me, are you ever going to be overwhelming me? And so for the first group that's insecurely avoidantly attached, emotion doesn't mean much for them. In this group, the insecurely anxiously attached, emotion means a lot and it's not always very comfortable. And so they're constantly like worried about where's the next you know, where's my, my, where's my next emotional meal coming from? And of course, they were folks who lived this out in their adult life, as demonstrated by the people who would work with them in their friendships that were also interviewed in this study. Then there was the third group. And you all kind of see where this kind of like Goldilocks and Three Bears is going, yeah. right? <laughs> okay, right? And uh, like, it's like you could, like, you, you it's like, gosh. And these parents were just right. They, they were just right. And in <laughs> fact, and in fact, these were people who would have described their experience growing up as parents who were attentive and attuned to them, were what we would call, they were mentalizing them. They were paying attention to the activity of their child's mind. They recognized that their children were were shy. They recognized this. Oh, and the, the second group that I just described, they also, they would say, yes, I remember being shy. But this third group, the, you know, they would say that they're, you know, they, they had parents who recognized this and they would push them far enough, but not too far. They were bringing them along. They were noting when they were working hard, they would knowing, they would, when they would see that they were being overwhelmed, they would pause, they would pull back on the throttle, if that, would make, if that makes sense. And as these folks grew into maturity and as adults, some really interesting things came out about what it was like to work with them. People would say, you know, they make great leaders, but they also make great followers. These are people who, no matter where they are in their work life, whether they're in a leadership position per se, or whether they're in like, you know, the ground level of stuff that they're having, these are people who work hard, but they're also able to set proper limits for themselves and for other people. They are people who are not afraid to make mistakes, and they are people who, when mistakes get made, they work to repair them. When there are ruptures that take place in relationships, they move to repair them. These are people who found themselves to be really comfortable in their own skin. But here's another thing that was really interesting in this study. When they were asked, so what was it like for you to remember being a shy kid? And they almost to a person would say, like, I don't remember being shy. Hmm. Their story was effectively told very differently because of how their parents interacted with them. Now, there's one more piece of information that's really interesting. And that is all of these folks as adults were given studies, what we call PET scan studies, in which we look at the brain activity and the kind of excessive hyperactivity, especially of the amygdala, the part of the brain that helps register fear for us, the part of the brain that when we are shy is kind of on overdrive. It's looking at the world as a un relatively unsafe place, even though we wouldn't call it unsafe, but it's an uncomfortable place, right? Novelty is uncomfortable for me. Every single one of these adults, their amygdala were still hyperactive. Even the ones who didn't find themselves remembering that they were shy. The brain's amygdala was still firing, but the beauty is that the parenting work of the parents helped the development of the prefrontal cortex of these kids to override the fear of the amygdala. And these were kids who had secure attachments. These were kids who paid attention to emotion, and in which over the course of their lifetime, as they experienced more and more difficult emotion, their parents helped them regulate that. Their parents helped them, as we like to say, expand their window of tolerance to widen my capacity to feel things in ways that 
might be difficult initially, but I learn how to incorporate that into my life. And so as I relationally interact with other adults, I anticipate and expect to be interacting with those adults in ways that would be commensurate with that healthy, securely attached pattern. And when I interact with adults who are not able to do that, I fairly effectively am able to do one of two things. I either work to deepen our relationship and bring that relationship along, or I discover this other person isn't really up to that, and I'm going to set a limit and not have a relationship with them that is going to be unhealthy. I'm going to set a limit on that. These are the three more prominent ways that we talk about attachment. There is a fourth way that we talk about that is disorganized. I'll give you an example of that. We have a patient who, when I began to meet with him in his mid-30s, he would describe that as a kid, he was about five and he had two younger siblings. And his father would put them to bed at night. And when his mom wasn't there, his father would put them to bed at night. And after the dad has turned the lights out, everybody's put to bed, his dad would begin at one end of the hallway of their upstairs house and start to kind of moan and yell and scream as a monster coming down the hallway in the dark after he's put the kids to bed. And of course, everybody was just scared witless. And of course, as this young man was doing work in therapy with me and he's recounting this, I'm like, gosh, that just sounds awful. And he was like, yeah, I, I never really understood. Well, in the course of our work together, he eventually went back and had a conversation with his dad. And he's like, why did you do that? Because like he remembers like being afraid himself, but also like his two younger siblings would get upset and he would then be in this position of having to comfort his younger siblings because his dad wasn't really, you know, he would just say like, well, why you don't need to be upset. You don't need to be upset. I'm just having some fun. And his dad later would say, I think I was just trying to connect with you guys. Okay, this is not a father who didn't love his kids. Right. This is a father who loved his kids, but the father himself was not loved well enough as a kid himself to be able to be aware of his impact on the developing minds of his children. And so this 35-year-old, then in the work that he was doing, began to come to terms with the fact that that kind of trauma. And we think like, that's not sexual abuse. That's nobody's being beaten, but it was still like a fairly common thing that would happen. It would disorganize the children's mind's ability to be able to trust the very person that they need to trust in order for their safety and security. Here's their dad who's just 10 minutes ago put them to bed and is now behaving like a frightening monster. Like how does one learn to trust this if you're a two-year-old? How do you do this? This can be disorganizing, which means that any kind of move toward intimacy can be actually quite disintegrating. The very act of a move toward intimacy, a move toward a bid for attachment, then creates a certain sense of distress within me. So the very thing that I long for, I long to be known. I long to be seen. I long to be heard because I want to, like we all do, We all long to be seen and heard in order for us to then go on to create beauty and goodness in the world. I have a hard time creating that beauty when every time I get close to intimacy, the ground under my feet starts to move and I don't even have a clear understanding of why that's happening. And so one of the things that we then discover is In the course of this attachment, we don't just have feelings about emotion. We don't just have patterns of connecting with relationships. It also shapes the very way, by the time I develop language, it shapes the way I begin to tell the story about my life. Without me knowing it, I began to tell the story of my life in a way that said, I'm a source of anxiety and I have to work really hard to make sure that I don't make people anxious or make people angry or there's going to be trouble. And so I'm working really hard. I'm working overtime to ingratiate myself. And of course, you know, because I know that if you look like you're ingratiating yourself, like that doesn't work either. And so you have to do it without looking like you're doing it. And so you become really, really good at putting on these certain roles. And I think about your story, Pepper, and I think about like the whole notion of 
how beautiful it would be for you as a kid growing up in the work you're doing in your yard for your dad to come and say like, dude, I see how hard you're working. Like, and you're the one who's working. Like, where are your sisters? Like, I don't know where they are. They're your sisters, right? Don't start with that. Okay, okay, because I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure, right? We're not going down that road. Okay, right. But like, to have him say, to have him say, I'm just really proud of how hard you're working. I'm really proud of how, because I know that you're working really hard. You're going to school, you're doing this, you're doing that. We're in the summertime, like you've got these things. Thank, thank you so much for doing this. If we don't hear that, if I don't hear that voice, like our first group of folks, if they don't hear the voice of their parents who are saying, like, I see how hard you're working at this. And to be able to, like, acknowledge how hard it is to be shy, how, to acknowledge that, but still to kind of, like, bring them along. They weren't able to do that. They were just pushing, 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 pushing. Then when you see Willie cutting your lawn, you can be grateful, but it also, like, draws out this specter of, like, well, why didn't you get this done? How did you like, you know, and all the things that come behind that. And yet at the same time, Willie gives you the experience of being seen, soothed, safe, secure. And receiving that gift is one of the hardest things that we do then because we like to talk about this notion. And this is, this is the beautiful thing about attachment research. We learn that if we are insecurely attached and we begin to develop relationships with people who are paying attention to us in beautiful, meaningful ways, we can develop secure attachment. We aren't left alone with our insecure avoidant or insecure anxious attachment. We are not left alone with this. In the same way, God comes to us. God comes to us in Jesus and says, like, I'm not leaving the room. I see your distress. I see your brokenness, and I'm coming to heal that. And the moment that he gets that close, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I like the idea of this, but I'm not sure that I actually like this. And there is this war. Like, I am the war inside, right? John Foreman and Switchfoot. I am the war inside. Skirmishing, pitched battle with God's attempt to come for me. It's like that burning one in The Great Divorce where C.S. Lewis, he comes for the guy, the creature on the guy's shoulder. May I kill it? And the guy doesn't know what he wants him to do. This is what secure attachment looks like because it requires work on our part. We call it earned secure attachment, not because we do all the working, but there is a certain effort that we have to put into allowing this intimacy to take place. For a lot of people who are married, y'all who are married, you know what this is like. You're, you, you thought you knew them. You know, you, as, we, as I tell people, like, look, when you commit to marrying the person on the day you get married, you aren't really committing to that person. Like you Because you have no idea who this person is. Heck, they don't even know who they are. You're committing to commitment. I'm committing to, like, I'm going to stay in the room with you. And of course, I'm committing to you. But as we grow together, we discover like, oh my gosh, like the intimacy with which you come to me like touches the parts of me that have not yet been securely attached. And so I'm gonna have to work at allowing myself to be loved by you in ways that at first glance, I'm like, ugh, I didn't know that this was gonna be like this. And so I'm, I, I just want to say, like, I'm, I'm just so pleased for you that Willie is in your life. And I also want to say, like, I really get it that having, having Willies in our life, like, it gives me the Willies, right? There is the sense, like, it, <laughs> right? It, like, he, Willie gives me the Willies. Like, he gives me right. himself. And in so doing, it both, like, I both welcome it and I'm, I'm made anxious by it. Right. And this, in many respects, is the work of integration, it is the work of what the Bible would call sanctification, my allowing myself to be loved so that I will then only see Willie's gift to me as a source of how I can then, with joy, continue to give to the people in my life as a result. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective. It's, it's interesting to me that um, we have in the example of the three shy kids and their parents, we have the third set of parents who are co-regulating the narrative so that 
the child then can tell a different story about themselves. Absolutely. So the other thing is that that uh, kid that was in the bed that was too hard and the one that was in the bed that was too soft, there's still hope for them. Absolutely. Because you can co-regulate. You can have people co-regulate as an adult. That's right. We don't give up because our parents didn't meet all of our emotional needs because no parent is ever going to meet all right. of your emotional needs. Right. You right. have to find people in your life. You have to do the work to find people that are going to co-regulate with you, right. that are going to love you, that are going to hear your story. Right? Right. So I want to take this opportunity to tell you folks about uh, the Center for Being Known. And uh, actually have Kurt tell you about the Center of Being Known. They have an event coming up, and uh, I'm excited about it personally. Kurt, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the Center for Being Known and about this event that you have that you're planning. Thanks, Pep. Most of you will not be aware that for a number of years, uh, in hibernation has been a small nonprofit organization called the Center for Being Known. And we exist for the mission of being able to create a space where people can come together and be connected. Anyone who really has an interest or a vested stake in what's taking place in life at this intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. And as it turns out, that's not just something that applies to psychotherapy or the mental health field. We believe that this place of convergence of neuroscience and spiritual formation is something that has application deeply in many realms, in fact, every realm of vocational domain that we occupy. So whether you're in church ministry or you're in education or you're running a law practice or an accounting firm or you're a carpenter or you're a truck driver, whatever it is, if you're a gardener or a farmer, whatever it is, we want this to be a space where you can come together and be connected with like-minded people who are asking the questions, how can these questions of neuroscience and spiritual formation speak into my life in practical ways that I can then take away and then apply this and actually even create a community of my own who can both exercise and engage and apply these principles in our own particular domains of life. And to that end, CBK, as we call it, the Center for Being Known, will be having its inaugural annual conference virtually on October 22nd, Friday, October 22nd, this coming year, this coming fall, 2021. And we would invite you all to be there. You can find out more information about this by looking online at thecbk.org, thecbk.org. We expect that this is going to be an opportunity for people of a wide range of different communities, different vocational callings to come together to be nourished in this way of neuroscience and Christian spiritual formation. In fact, we're going to have four speakers, including myself, four other speakers who will be giving us a window into how they are applying this work one in ministry, one in education, one in leadership, and one in the field of psychotherapy. Each of them, uh, people that I know personally and that are really skilled at applying this kind of work. And so with that in mind, I wanna invite you all to consider doing that again, October 22nd, 2021, our first annual CBK conference called Connections. Please join us there. Excellent. So you can find out more at thecbk.org. Well, you know, you think about the Gospels, and I'm, 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 I'm currently in, in reading through the Gospel of Mark, and, you know, you get to the second and third chapter, right, right out of the chute, Jesus is doing all these amazing things, and right along with it, shame is traveling right with him, hmm. right? It's like he heals the guy with a withered hand in, in you know, and, he, and then and he goes on, and he breaks off seeds on the Sabbath, and his disciples eat it, and he's doing beautiful, good things in the world, and he's in, like, and people are coming, like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? And people are coming from hither and yon to be with him, to be healed and transformed. And the neighbors complain to his family and they say, and this like this is the first New Testament psychiatric you know, admission to say, <laughs> he's losing his mind. This is what the gospel says. You need to go and get your boy because he's losing his mind. And this, this whole notion 
that when we when goodness comes into the world shame wraps its tentacles right around it it wants to come in and out and it wants it wanted to tell jesus like like you're a whack job dude there's something wrong with you and not only that but he's getting that message directly from his family right his family could have said to the neighbors hey i'm not really sure if you know who this cat is but like you're going to be hearing about him for a long time Long after, like, your kids are dead, people are going to be hearing about this guy. No, they don't say that. The parents respond to the neighbors by them being anxious, and they got to, like, they got to go, like, contain this because this is embarrassing. Like, we don't know what to do with this. And so from the very beginning, right, the gospel says that God is coming, and it doesn't matter that our stories from of old, from the time of Adam and Eve... And from the time you and I have come into the world, Pepper, where shame has wrapped itself around and causes me to tell a story, just like the neighbors were telling the story that like, they don't, they weren't telling the story like, this is amazing, this, you know, the Messiah has arrived, right? The good shepherd has arrived. The living water has arrived. No, they're like, this guy is out of his mind. In the same way, we also have voices that are telling us similar kinds of things and have been telling us similar kinds of things. There's something wrong with you. You're out of your mind. You think you're the living You No, you're not. You're a problem. And we need to solve you by shutting you up. And Jesus does the work. This is where we would say, look, there were all these voices trying to tell him who he was. And this is where in Christian, in the Christian story, in Christian anthropology, this whole then theology, we would say like the Holy Trinity is a community whereby which Jesus had his dad's voice in his ear. And his voice said, I love you. I can't believe that we get to do this work together. You are my son whom I love. This is the dominant co-regulating voice that Jesus is listening to. And so you're right, Pepper. We are our work in moving toward earned, secure attachment and telling a different story, telling the full story of what Willie is trying to tell you about you, that you are loved. And because you are loved, I cut your grass. And I want you to feel the very thing that your kids have heard from me. I'm not just going to be a, like a surrogate grandfather to your kids. I'm going to be your dad where you needed your dad to be what your dad maybe at times couldn't be. I'm going to mow your grass. I'm going to wave to you and say, like, well done. Well done trying to do all the hard work of mowing the grass and working on the tractor and throwing your back out because, like, you've just lifted your kid's furniture up four flights of stairs. Well done being a husband. Well done being the work, you know, being the worker that you're being. Well done. And in the middle of all that and your back being thrown out, I'm coming for you. I'm coming on a tractor and I'm going to mow your grass. And what I, all I want you to do is just receive it. Bask in it. And this is the voice that Jesus has to pay attention to when his family comes and says, Hey, what are you doing? You're not getting the grass cut well enough. You should be at home working on, you know, working on building door jams. That's what you were trying to do. It's like, I'm about my father's work. And we are our father's work. Our father who comes to us in Jesus, our older brother, says, I'm not leaving the room. I'm here to cut your grass. Because I see how hard you're working. I think it's really important for us to be asking the question, who are the people who are in our lives who are regularly helping us co-regulate, regularly helping us tell the story that God wants us to be listening to and telling, such that we aren't believing the lies that the world, the flesh, and the devil would want us to hear, but we are believing and hearing the story that you are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I delight. And I have work of beauty and goodness for you to create. 
And it may actually be in the very places where you least expect it to take place. I want to just thank you for um, changing the narrative of that story for me. Hmm. Um, Hmm. uh, You you, you helped me already take something that, as I confessed, I was embarrassed about Hmm. to now see as the pure gift Hmm. and... um, and as I as I picture Willie just riding away and waving to me and smiling, not expecting anything in return, hmm. it's helping me to even in this moment. draw closer to God to mm. to see a tangible picture mm. of Jesus coming to my rescue mm. Mm. and just giving me a little wave and mm. a smile mm. to mm. thank you. Well, you know, Pepper, you're you're welcome. You you are welcome. And I I think about uh, I think about the ways. I, again, we've we've mentioned this before. I think about the number of conversations that you and I have shared over the last eight years, in which I have named things about my story for which I have felt uh, deeply embarrassed. And it's not just like, I mean, in some of those cases, it's not just a matter of, you know, shame, like showing up in one big chunk. It's like shame shows up in these like tentacles in these nooks and crannies, kind of like, it'd be one thing if you just say, oh, there's the shame is in that. That's the shame room. And you go in and you just like clear that room out. No, it's like, there's a little bit of shame in every room in the house. And Mm. it's hard to find. It just shows up. And, um, and, and so, you know, you, it's, it's this felt sense of, uh, oh, I can say something, I can tell you a story and you're being able to help me co-regulate that helps change the narrative of the story. The challenge is that the story is old enough and ancient enough, or maybe it's strong enough that, you know, the next time I talk to you, that, 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 that story hasn't been completely resolved. It's not completely healed. And so then there is the part of me that is embarrassed that I'm still having to tell you, like it's, it's not resolved. Like I, we had that conversation, you know, like three months ago and now I'm back and it's like the same thing hasn't worked itself out. And like, now I'm embarrassed that I haven't like, you know, taken care of my shame, like fully. And uh, you don't leave the room. And I know that I know that you have, and I have, other relationships in our lives. I even, you know, Amy, who's part of our production here. I mean, we we've shared things with her. I mean, I, I, uh, not only do I need a person, not only do I need you in my life. It's not like, well, here's my list of shame things. I'll tick them off one at a time. It's like all these, they seem to like continue to like they will repeat themselves. And so I got to come back to the same story with you over and over again at times, it seems. And you're like, no, it's okay. I'm not leaving the room. We're going to keep at it. We're going to keep working on the lawn. And so I'm just really grateful uh, for our friendship and that you have been a person that God is using to help me retell my story. Um, you know, I... Uh, I've, I've, as I've said, you know, there there is this part of me that believes that before I'm anything else, anytime I meet somebody, I'm 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 a source of anxiety. Even before I meet them, there is this old, ancient narrative that's wrapped up in my interpersonal neurobiological wiring. That's you know, it's pre-verbal. It's not like 
I know this is a fact. It's, it's this felt sense that I feel in my chest. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we often say is uh, how much humor we, we've talked before. We, when we talked about neuroplasticity in last season, we talked about how humor is a way that we actually like uh, help mobilize our neural networks. We like loosen them up and we then give them space and room to move, right? And I, I also want to just testify to the fact that the humor that we have shared in the time that we have been friends and loved one another has been one of the most helpful things that has enabled me to uh, continue to believe that you really want to be in the room with me. Despite the fact that there is, you know, there are these, you know, these old neural tracks that evil will want to continue to like try to activate, just like Jesus' family was trying to impress upon him what the surrounding neighbors had impressed upon them, that like there's something wrong with you. And before you're anything else, you're a source of anxiety, right? Because like, like, look, it would have been fine if you'd been born into a family in which your parents had already been married by the time she got pregnant. But like, like Jesus, before he was anything else, was a source of anxiety. Like you, you can see this, right? Could potentially have been with Mary. And there's this, like, the world is going to want to tell a story to him about him. Well, did you know that your parents weren't married when your mom got pregnant? Like how many people probably said that to him? Like, well, you know, he said, oh yeah, you're Joseph's son. Yeah, well, so they say. <laughs> right, I mean, like you can, you can, you can imagine. Right. And all the work that Jesus has to do to pay attention to the spirit and to his father. And I am just so grateful that you have been the voice of the Trinity. And that Amy has been the voice of the Trinity. And that, you know, you have friends who have been that for you. And I hope I can, you know, be part of that for you. And, uh, and I, I long for you all to each be thinking who are going to be people who are going to Help me imagine that what I'm really doing is living in the world, living in the dance of the Holy Trinity, living in this world in which the Trinity is inviting us to come and join this party, join this celebration, join this endeavor to be deeply known in such a way that we move toward an in, move toward a, a, an earned, secure attachment, whereby which we seek joy, we understand ourselves to be a source of joy, and even when there are ruptures, that we anticipate that those are simply opportunities for the repair work that leads to even greater resilience, greater depth of connection, and that I anticipate and hope for and expect with confidence that that's what's going to happen. And we even recognize that evil will want to change things for us. It will want to tell us you're out of your mind. We want you all, Pepper and I and Amy, we want you all to know that the Holy Trinity wants you to know that you're invited into this space in which those places of insecure attachment, those places of traumatic events and shame that seem to tentacle themselves around your life, your brain, and the story that you tell about yourself, the story that you tell that other people tell about you, that those are opportunities for a new story to emerge. Those are opportunities for the renewal of your mind, the changing of your brain, and the securing of your attachment to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Kurt, thank you so much for today. Um, I say that all the time, but I, I think uh, even more so today, just mm. for giving me some personal insight um, was really a gift for me. Mm. I, hope, I hope that uh, this is a gift for all of our listeners and um, we will, uh, we'll be back at it. And yeah. I can't wait. We will. I can't wait. We, yeah. I, I can't wait either. And uh, I, I would, uh, 
it's it's almost as if like we uh, we got to find like we need to send Willie a gift card or something. We need. I, just, I feel like <laughs> I feel like he's provided so much material for our time today. It's like right. you know you know God came to us in the form of Willie. And as far as we know, yep. it's free, Willie. There we go. I mean, Kurt's just going, oh, goodness. Like, okay, Kurt, it's time to stop. It's just time to stop. It's time to stop. Oh, Kurt. Oh, my gosh. Okay. This was this is great. Thank you so man. much. I love and you, buddy. Until next time, I love you, man. Until next time. Talk soon. Yep. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is by Keaton Simons. If you'd like to connect with us, you can visit us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well, be known. <laughs>